0: Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace as always, this is Bob Hutchins, and I have been uh, really excited and waiting a while for this interview. I have a very special person on the line with me today, and you're going to love this discussion. Her name is Biette Simkin. And I'm going to read you a little bit of her bio. She's got a new book out, and I will talk about that in a second. We'll unpack that in our conversation. But Biet has a fascinating background. She has a great story. It's one of pain, of beauty, of awakening, all mixed into one, and I think you're really going to love it. Biet is the complete, unique spiritual teacher with a rare rock and roll sensibility. She's been called the David Bowie of meditation by television host and activist, Stacey London. She's been written up in Forbes and L and Harper's Bazaar time and the New York times, just to name a few. Here's a little bit about Biet's background. She was raised by an awakened shaman who cured himself from near death in the woods of Russia. She has 30 plus years of study and practice under her belt Uh, What makes her story even more special is the amount of adversity that she has overcome. Losing most of her family to death as a young child while growing up in New York City, she's turned tragedy uh, into many different things. And one of those is music. She's a songwriter. And she got signed to Sony Records at 18 years old. And after that, she had a near-death experience. She also lost her four-month-old daughter. And she had her house burned down. And while living in that burned-down house, doing heroin for four months, her best friend hung himself, and then her awakened teacher father, who she was very close with, died. And after five years of heroin and cocaine addiction, she got sober, and nearly 11 years ago, founded a meditation experience that she guides globally, uh, scores and scores of people, and she also scores her own music with that. Her work is just as warm and intimate with a group of 12 in a living room as it is with thousands of people on a stage. So I hope you get the idea that this is going to be an interesting and a very engaging conversation. Biet, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much. So excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So you're out in uh, sunny California. Uh, We have (laughs) a very close mutual friend in how, how we were introduced. I have to tell this story. My daughter, who is in school, Lauren, in New York City, she babysits on the weekends for extra money as she's going to school. And she called me one day and said, hey, dad. You need to talk to this woman and her husband. They're really cool, and I love her little girl. She's so sweet, but Mm -hmm. I think you guys will really resonate. You need to have her on your podcast. So the synchronicity of it all, Biet, is really cool. So again, welcome, and I'm excited to hear more of your story.
1: So cool. Yeah, and I was really, really mad. She's also very magical, so I feel very honored that it all came together so perfectly.
0: Yeah. So, Biet, tell me a little bit about, before we get into the book and your practice, tell me, like, where were you born? Tell me about your parents. Tell me about your journey, because I know your parents were immigrants, but you were born here in the U.S., correct?
1: I was. Yeah, I was born here a month after they immigrated.
0: Okay. And, and um, they're yeah. from Russia?
1: Yeah, my parents were from Russia. They were, uh, they were living in Leningrad. Mm-hmm. And um, so like very central, very, you know, kind of high cultured individuals. But with communism, the way that it shakes out is that it really doesn't matter. You know, it's like my grandfather was the first chair violinist for the Leningrad Philharmonic, and he probably made less money than like the average janitor makes here in like a rural town, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Because communist Russia just was that way. Um, there's other forms of payment, right? So, I mean, that's what he did. And then he was my father's father. My mother's side was like, her mom was a famous chemist who was like one of the only scientists that was allowed to leave uh, Russia during communism. Like, they weren't, people weren't allowed to leave, but she like convinced them that she had to go to Paris. Mm. <laughs> so she would like get to leave and go to Paris. So she was pretty cool. And uh, my parents were, you know, they were just kind of stifled in their own ways growing up in a place where you weren't allowed to practice um, religion. And so Mm -hmm. they didn't know that they were Jewish. They had no traditions, no values, nothing. Like the only thing they were allowed to study was uh, kind of like the Darwin, like, you know, those were their monkeys and now we're humans kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so they were very, they had many problems because of this, especially my dad. I think my mom was kind of a more She just, you know, there's people who are like miserable, but kind of find a way to just be genuinely fantastic people anyway and find happiness anyway. Mm. And then there's like crazy wisdom type of people. Mm. And I think my father falls more into that category. And that's someone who's just kind of um, they see all the pain and the adversity and it drives them crazy. So it makes them either very angry or very resentful or very afraid or you know, some kind of culmination of all those things. So my dad, through being all of those things, gave, gave himself tuberculosis mm. and he was going to die. And then like he was told by someone in Russia that he could do this thing that was illegal and he could get killed, but, you know, he could cure himself from tuberculosis maybe. So he was like, all right, I'll do it. And so he went to the woods of Russia and like studied with a secret shaman and cured himself of tuberculosis. Mm. And I think that was the beginning of his journey. And inside of that, he learned like Ayurveda and Hatha yoga and meditation. And he discovered the Torah, which, you know, my lineage is Jewish. And then not, not really religious, but Ju- Judaism is like its own kind of thing, right. right? So it's kind of like being black. Like if you're, you're a Jew, you're a Jew. And there's something there regardless of whether you like do Shabbat on Friday. And uh, so he did that. And then he kind of came to my mom and was like, do you want to? Make love and you know, create a freedom child, and I was that. Like she was mm. like, all right, let's do that. So they did that. They made an intentional baby to like be born into freedom. Mm. Uh, and my brother, who was eight years older than me, had already s- suffered quite a few anti-Semitic uh, in- encounters. Like he had been thrown down a flight of stairs by a young boy who was like a more like Anglo, mm. uh, being called a dirty Jew. He was forced to like eat his own vomit in kindergarten mm. by teachers like when he would, it was just really bad so I think he, they just wanted a new fresh start for for me and then when they got here uh, they had this big plan to like you know, create an ashram and she was going to run it and he was going to be like the guru and you know, it was all great and then they all just everyone in my family started to die starting with my mom. Mm. So by the time I was like, it started when I was six. she died when I was six, and then kind of Every few months or every year, like someone else said, mm. until it was just me, my brother and my father. So it was just like really, really traumatic and uh, tragic childhood. Also, mm. like as immigrants, we were very poor. So it wasn't like we, you know what I mean? We're like living in a mansion while all these things were happening. We were like living in Queens in like this ramshackle apartment. And it was just really dark.
0: Mm. And how old were you when your mother died?
1: I was six. I was almost seven.
0: And was that what, what do you remember or still feel about that time, and what, what, what was that like?
1: Um, it was excruciating, but also um, you know illuminating because my father was this awakened teacher, and so like it was on the one hand, I had this strange feeling like about destiny and about time and about the meaning of life and about um, the cosmos and about where we come from and that we never die. I kind of understood those concepts from a very early age. So when my mom was dying, I had a very conflicted sensibility. Like half of me was like understanding the cosmic interpretation of all of it. And so I was like, it's a gift and, you know, kind of able to see it through this lens. And then the other half of me was like really, really sad and unable to process the trauma of that loss and, I think that I went with the cosmic version and that's kind of what I ran with because it felt better. You know what I mean? It was like mm-hmm. an easier interpretation. But the problem with that is that I didn't actually, I don't think, fully really process how sad I was until much, much later, until it, you know, until sobriety and my current like 11 years of questing into feeling all of my feelings. I don't think I was able to really feel those things. So it's no surprise that that later led to uh, heroin addiction and all the other ways in which I tried to pursue a, a way out. Cause I don't think I just, I, I don't think I could deal with how much pain I was in. I didn't know, I didn't have any tools for that.
0: Mm. And, and so you were six, seven years old, that all, that all happened. And then um, what was life like after your mom passed? What was, what was it like in the house? You, your dad, obviously was processing it you were processing it i'm sure your older brother was processing did something shift in in those relationships at all
1: yeah i think we became a lot closer but in a much more dysfunctional way like mm. i don't know if i would have been as like i don't remember my family being super dysfunctional actually mm. until my mom passed away it was like she died everyone, all the grandparents died. And what we were left with was this like awakened shaman who didn't care about money, didn't care about bank accounts, didn't care about Hmm. belongings, didn't care about real estate, didn't care about health insurance, life insurance, like schooling, you know what I mean? Right. So, so were you you and your brother just kind of
0: left to yourselves to raise yourself or what did that look like?
1: Basically? Yeah. I think, well, my brother ended up raising me too, but he was he was thirteen. So mm. that's basically what ended up happening was I was raised by a thirteen year old who was like the lunatic. You know, he was like this kid he was a kid, you know? <laughs> he was like um, he was like had porn all over the walls and mm. he was like blasting megadeth and like he was a drummer, so he was like playing drummers all all hours of the day in the house and he had all these metalhead friends who would all come over and like headbang together and like drink beers and, and it was like complete anarchy and then there was a, this patriarch who was always like in a robe um, preaching like these incredible mystical concepts and like my father when you were around him you just felt like you were in the presence of greatness he just had this incredible um, he was transmitting something you know he mm-hmm. really was um, it just came with a price you know like he was a human so he was he was a heavy drinker he was a womanizer he slept with a lot of his students so there was like a serial monogamy type of vibe so it was like mm-hmm. every two years a new woman would enter the house and like just make make residence there. <laughs> she was like, it was a residency, basically. You got to like sleep. Well, wasn't he a
0: psychotherapist too? Uh, didn't he? Wasn't he also? He like, was. A, okay.
1: Yeah, and so it was super unethical, but also like he was so mystical and so um, free thinking that he made everything make sense. So I remember never thinking my father was, like. I wouldn't have even been able to tell you any of these things when mm. he was still alive because I worshipped him to mm. such an extent. And I had him on such a pedestal, but I actually, ironically, it was a couple of years ago that it dawned on me that he was a womanizer and that he did sexualize women in a weird way that was like super unhealthy. And I came to terms with all that about two, two years ago. It was really recent. And I cried a lot while I was processing it. But at the same time, my fear in processing that information was that like, I'm not going to love my father anymore. Like I was like, I don't think I can love a man who's like so unethical and so broken and had so many flaws. But what I actually came to in that cleaning out and seeing was like the integration came around that when I actually got what a womanizer he was and all the things I loved him even more because Mm -hmm. it was like, it allowed me to love myself more. I mean, I'm not a womanizer or uh, many of the things that he was, I'm not those things, but you know, I'm a human. And so like I have my own flaws and I just think, um, I think we have this idea that enlightenment is a station. It's like somewhere you get to. And then once you're there, that's it. And you're like done with Mm -hmm. the journey. And I think that what I've learned through my own um, interactions with that state and with that um, station of creation, because like enlightenment is really a place from which you create if you get there um, is that it really is like a wheel, you know, Mm -hmm. it really is a place where, um, if you have found enlightenment, it means you're probably going to have to keep looking for it and finding it for the rest of your life. That'll be your, you know, like that's your lot in life now. Now you have to look for it forever and you always need to find it again because you can't live without it once you've found mm-hmm. it. But it doesn't mean you get to have it 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, forever because that's just not even the way it was designed mm-hmm. on earth yeah, I'm sure there's like a planet somewhere where we're all sitting around like <laughs> orgasming 24 hours a day, but that's not earth. We can all agree. There's like homeless people everywhere and starving people and wars. And we have this presidential can't, you know, it's just nuts. So right. I think, um, you know, we get to, we get to have something very different here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. In the midst of all that, you decide, you yeah. gravitate toward the melancholy, the creative, you start writing music and you start, kind of, maybe, maybe the influence of your brother, who knows, but you start going down the kind of like rock and roll lifestyle, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the influence of like pursuing music definitely was in my blood. You know, my father was a jazz musician. My grandfather was a, like I said, violinist for the Leningrad Philharmonic. We used to sing um, four-part harmonies with mom, dad, brother, mm. like all my childhood. So I just was destined to go that route. And then, yeah, I did. I started playing CBGBs and By by the time I was 18, I got signed
0: to Sony. Wow. So CBGB's, you're in that kind of punk rock, rock and roll scene, right?
1: Yeah. The music itself wasn't like that. So it was more like Mazzy Star meets Radiohead. Like it was very more, more moody.
0: Okay. And then, and then, so you're signed to Sony. What was that like at 18 what did that even look like or feel like for you? Was that a fat? Were you on like the the New York City rock and roll fast track at eighteen years old? What what was your lifestyle like?
1: To some extent, I was like at fancy parties. I was being limoed around everywhere. They put a bunch of money into making this record. Um, I had like all my stuff taken care of. My rent paid. Like every, they just took care of me mm-hmm. uh, for a while. And um, and then once the record was done and recorded, we did like a huge, like a kind of like a debut show of some kind. And then everything kind of just fell apart from there. And I'm not certain whether that was because I was kind of an alcoholic who was really in the cups and cared much more about falling in love uh, than I did about like making it as a successful musician. I, I might have told you that I wanted that, but my actions showed quite opposite things. And so... Uh, that it just didn't pan out. And then because it didn't pan out, I ended up like shaving my head and deciding to go uh, cross country selling my CDs out of my book bag. Mm. It was amazing. You know, like if it was, it was the the problem was that it was riddled with this deep, deep loneliness Mm. and confusion Mm. and everything that I did was wrong. You know, like I would find someone, I fell in love, I remember in San Francisco and it was like, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but like this feeling in your gut where you're like, oh, it's like electric, like, oh my God, I must do this. Like, I just know, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. I would be like compelled. And I think that it was like, I was basically, um, a victim of lust and magic and, you know, all, all these things would take me and they would, oh, what's that word? There's a word that I was just thinking of this morning. it'll come to me later but it's basically like when you're kind of um hypnotized Mm. like i would become hypnotized by that feeling Mm. and then i would become a bitch basically like like it would come over me and i was like this is it you know and then i would go you know fall in love with xyz and do this and it was always wrong Mm. it wasn't my intuition it was just kind of the devil one might say inside Mm. me leading me Mm. and so by following the devil for anyone who's ever tried that um really fun and there's a lot of benefits to it it's elusive it has this very oh the word that I was looking for was very yes. seductive very mm-hmm. seductive like it 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 looks like it's gonna be the thing and then it actually isn't and so it really was just the next nine years or so with me chasing that devil and you know, in the Bible, it even says, I think it's Jesus says something like devil get behind me. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the positioning was just very wrong. Like mm-hmm. devil was not in the correct position. Right. Devil was be, before me. And I rode, you know, I followed the devil. And, you know, when I got sober 11 years ago and, and kind of sh- shifted my um, organization, what I really had to shift was when that feeling comes of like being compelled by lust and seduction, I, I question it. You know, not because I want to be like a little prude who doesn't live a big life, but because I've noticed that when you follow the seductive energy, you actually end up with, you know, heartbreak and destruction. But if you follow like a much more calm frequency, that's where real sizable creation occurs. You know, it doesn't mean you have to give up, you know, materialism or wealth or anything like that. It just means that the way by which you g- gain those things is not a destructive way, mm. you know?
0: Right. Right. So you're going down that path, you're traveling across the country at, at some point, um, uh, along the way you end up, um, what are you in a relationship or you get pregnant and you have a baby? Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I was in a like pseudo relationship and I got pregnant. Mm.
0: And talk to me about that whole experience because I know that that's something obviously extremely sad. But tell me what happened there.
1: Well, I was dating this guy. I was just, you know, really in the New York uh, night scene at that point. I was a DJ and uh, very lost. But I had uh, gotten the news like two years earlier when I had my near death experience that I, I only had two years to have children because I had had this seven pound tumor removed from my uterus. Mm which is like a whole nother story. I think I tell in the book, but the idea is basically like I was saved, you know, and I, I should have, I should not have been able to have children by any stretch, but because my father had saved the life of this famous OBGYN, he rushed me to this VIP ward of this hospital and like snuck me in and carved the tumor out, which no doctor in his right mind would have done because it was like, it was corrosive. Like I shouldn't have whatever so he did that and I was able to have children but he told me like you can only have kids for two years and of course two years to the day I get pregnant mm. by accident and it's kind of like her name was Ula I felt like she kind of came in just to cure my uterus because when you have a child after having such tumor um, it cures the uterus so that you're no longer mm. on like a very tight timeline to have another baby you then are like kind of just cured and you can mm. have a baby whenever you want. And it's weird because I'm not psychic, but I've always had kind of these weird intuitive thoughts about my future. And so one thought I was, I always thought I'm going to have my first baby at 39. So when I got pregnant at 26, I was like, this is wrong. This isn't mm. the way that it was written. And so when she died, when she was four months old of sudden infant death, I I really wasn't um, surprised. I knew on some level that she wasn't going to live, even though she was 100% healthy. And, you know, he brought her dead body to me. I think this is another one of the ways in which I just wasn't willing to feel all of my feelings until recently. And so um I just went for the heroin. I, I remember leaving. I remember going to her funeral and seeing the little casket and just being so destroyed because I didn't even know they made caskets in that size. Like, I just mm. thought, I don't know why, because I guess I'd never been to a child's funeral before, but I just thought all caskets were like adult size, mm-hmm. And so when I saw the tiny little casket, I just felt like something's very wrong here. Like, that's not the correct, that's, that's not right. Mm-hmm. I just remember falling to the ground and having this kind of moment of, you know, complete despair. And then after the funeral, I went and got $100 worth of heroin, and I just kind of, that was it. And I just went off and... And I think it was at that point that the universe was like, really not, um, the time was running out for how long I was going to be able to pursue the whole devil thing, Mm. because I never came here to do that. Like I came here with a mission and you know, they, they say in, uh, the, the Buddhist work that there's like a thing called the Bodhisattva, which is like this, a person who comes back on purpose. Like they actually found it all out, figured it all out, but then came back with the knowledge that they were going to have all of that removed because that's how it happens on earth as we get everything removed and then we'll be able to find it again and then give it away as a result of finding it again. Mm. So I was always, I think, uh, I don't think I actually know that I was always destined to do that. And so as I got further and further away from the compass of that journey, the shocks became greater and greater. And mm. I think my daughter Ula dying was like number one. Mm. And then there was, Um, you know, my house burnt down and then my best friend hung himself and then my father died. And it was just kind of like this, that happened all within two years. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that basically at that point I was being given like, uh, this is, it's, it's coming to an end, you know? And I never was told by the universe, like, if you don't do the right thing, you're going to die. I just got that I was going to become this very broken person. And I think you see this a lot with like insane asylums and homeless people and people who've just like completely fallen off the rail is um, I think they've just been gifted too much wisdom or too much information mm-hmm. and they didn't have the being to to hold it. And I knew that I was becoming that. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I think that like, I, I have all this wisdom. Like clearly I've been studying meditation and spiritual philosophical texts since I was a baby, but I didn't have the being to hold any of it. And what you get when you mix those two things together is a crazy person. And Mm. you just, you see that all the time in society. Someone who's just like overweight or lost and they're like sitting in a basement somewhere with their books, but they're off the reservation. You Mm. know what I mean? Because they just can't, they don't have the being to like actually go integrate that into reality, which I think is like basically the hardest thing to do on the planet. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and the most fun <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well talk to me about what was the turning point then so so you're going through this hell for you know two years even before that what was the yeah. turning point what What made you say I have to make a change or else I'm either I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this play this earth or I'm gonna end up you know like these you know these crazy people in the street what, what was the what was the turning point for you <laughs>
1: Um, I just had this, I was doing fourth way work at the time, which is the work that I teach. And I was kind of using this tool of divided attention, which is a meditation mm-hmm. tool you use while you're in life. And so it split my attention and have one attention on what I was doing and one attention I would use as a voyeur to see myself from above. Mm-hmm. And one day I was floating above myself and I could just see that I was like, I was 29 at the time and I was like, Oh my God, like. You're going to be 40, um, which now I am 40, but I was then I was like, oh, my God, you're going to be 40 and you're going to be single and you're going to be overweight and you're going to be alone and you're going to be a loser and you will not have learned how to make money and you will not do anything with your life and you won't make it at music like you're going to just fail at everything. You're going to be like some drunken woman at a party you know spouting philosophical brilliant philosophical concepts that like a young boy Mm. that's where you're headed (laughs) you know Mm. and I could just see for the for the first time I saw what I actually looked like you know Mm. which was like a I wasn't like a predator but like I just was like this lunatic I was like this person who had a lot of intelligence and um and I say this for anyone who's listening to who's like very smart it's like you know it's a real people think that's like some winning the lotto kind of thing to be smart it's actually really not to be the smarter you are the more your intelligence has the power to take you away from spirit and take you away from your heart Mm. and ironically the heart is like the only guiding the guiding system that we have that actually functions in our our body and so if you're using your head to like go through life you know and so that's where I was I was just like all head and nothing else Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot lot of head and I could see it and I was like I don't think I can do this anymore And I just kind of crawled broken and poor and lost into sobriety. That was like the next stage is I just Mm. got sober. Yeah.
0: You you talk a little you you just mentioned, you know, these voices, um these voices of shame, uh, of of brokenness that say, you're not going to be this, you'll never be that, you'll never be that. From your work and and your understanding, and I want to get into some details of your book and some of these principles here in a few minutes, but where do you think that comes from? Because I think many of us struggle with that, those voices, uh, believing, you know, that's what holds us back from really doing what we feel like is our true self, our dreams, what we've always felt as a child, what we've always wanted. But you, as years go by, you say, well, you'll never do that. Or you'll never become that. You're not good at it. Whatever. Where, where does that come from? Oh yeah. Those
1: voices?
0: Yeah. Like what is that like ego? Is that what, you know, in your work, you know, I, I have some, you know, thoughts and I've talked to lots of different people, um, you know, some people never get past that. You know, they're 80, 75, 80 years old and they're saying, I, I just wish I would have done this, but I never had the opportunity mm. or I wasn't good enough. Or, you know, they're still reminiscing about their failures and still living in that oh, shame sure. and that brokenness.
1: Yeah, I would say most people are in mm. that. Um mm. It's just very, it's very seductive. Again, it's back to this kind of devil concept. It's like we are made out of infinite light and possibility, which is mm. like this transformative energy that can be. It's the core energy of the creation of anything. So, like I imagine that energy and that light is one. What one would have to tap into to come up with the idea of electricity, and then like make that happen on the planet, right? Or mm-hmm. um, come up with any idea and then execute it on the actual planet in, in manifest, like um, actually manifest. Sure. So, um, to me, that energy is, um, not accessible to us unless we know how to turn away from again. I don't know why the the devil is uh, the analogy that I'm using today, but just like this devil energy. And I would say this devil energy is there, um, because it is very seductive because it's much easier. It's a much uh-huh. easier to say, I can never do that because you'd never have, to, you wouldn't have to do it. Um, I just find that like my journey has been one of like massive amounts of difficulty and um, massive amount of discomfort. Uh-huh. I would say like it's, I think people, what people don't understand about successful people is the amount of rejection that they endure, the amount of like missed opportunities or Uh, jealousy of other people's opportunities or the amount of, um, you know, things that they go for that never come to fruition or negotiations that go sour. There's just so much to be um, disappointed about all the time. It's just about turnaround. Like I, there was a time in my life where that stuff meant a lot to me. Like if, if I felt uncomfortable, that meant a lot to me, or if I was sad that meant a lot to me or if someone rejected me that meant a lot to me and i could really lose like a couple years on something like someone would say something to me at a party and that could be like the next couple of years Mm. i just wouldn't be able to fully perform at max level because i was just so destroyed by what has been said or whatever and today it's like i don't have that much time i've got maybe maybe like a couple minutes maybe a couple of hours you know, to go with with that ride. Mm. But that's about it because honestly, like I got to get on the next thing. Like if that email didn't go well, I've got like 10 more to go. You know what I mean? Like it's not that serious. And so I think it's, you know, what are those voices? I actually think that that the light is created with this. So it's like on earth, the way that it is displayed is through this seeming duality. Mm. And the people who get it are no longer seeing them as separate. So like Mm, there was a time in my life where I was like, this is rejection and this is approval or like Mm. this is, you know, winning and this is losing. And like, to me, they were very different. And so I was very um, upset by one and eager to have the other. And what I realized was actually like the light is made out of both. So if you want access to that light energy that I was just speaking about a second ago, then you, you have to, you know, bear. You have to. You have to have a container that can bear this dark part of this whole thing.
0: Mm, that's good. You know, one of my um, one of my favorite authors, and I quote him all the time, is Richard Rohr. I don't know if you've read any of his books, but one of the things he says is that um, transformation comes only one of two ways: either through great pain or great love, but usually through both. And um, mm-hmm. your life and everything you've said. Um, this transformation, this awakening, whatever you want to call it, um, it's something that's done to us. Uh, it's not something necessarily that we just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to be awakened and I want to like expand the reality of who I am and I want to go deeper into the spirit. And it's usually through some sort of um, great struggle or pain or tremendous love. Is, is, would you resonate with that?
1: Oh, for for sure. Because I mean, because there's only like, there's real things. And then there's, you know, like in the work that I teach, which I don't go into this in the book, it's more like things that I teach on a more personal level. There's this idea that there's worlds that we're under, like how many laws are we actually under? Mm. And, and in the book, the book is the 44 laws. The idea is that like on an average day, on any given day, when you wake up, you're underneath 44 laws that prevent you from experiencing enlightenment or freedom or love or connection or inner tranquility, all of those things. You have 44 laws like working against you. And that's what the book is it, it shows you what those laws are and how to mess with them. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, the question being, right. So, like, if you are living under those laws, you don't feel great love. You don't feel great pain. You don't feel anything because you're just kind of numb mm. and I, I don't know if anyone else can relate listening to this but I just think that is kind of the greatest tragedy is the numbness I don't even mind I've never minded you know when the shit would hit the fan and I was in the emergency room and my Doc Martin's in the blistering cold and like a satin robe you know waiting to see if they could save my child who had already died through some kind of weird emergency procedure and I was like laying down on the floor it wasn't as hard for me as like those days when I would just wake up on a normal day, nothing was wrong, not a cloud in the sky, but for some reason I wanted to die. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why, but I felt this heavy weight of like a kind of almost like a depression metal blanket that told me that no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried, I would fail. And I may as well just give up now. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that's what we as humans, interact with much more often and that's what this work is all about this work is about reaching a place where you can be with the real pain in your life the real tragedies the real suffering and then you can also be with the great accomplishments and the joy and i think those are the two things that are hardest for us to be present for we're like oh god this is too much for me on all fronts Mm. and we and then we shut down and go back to this 44 law bullshit where we're like just numb
0: yeah, one of the things I've heard you talk about, uh, and I want to get into some specifics of your book in a minute here because I have it here, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through uh, some th- some pages that I've, I've kind of dog eared here and riff on a little bit with you. But before I get to that, you, you're touching on, you're touching on something, talking about human beings being numb, and, and you, you have said, I've heard you say before that most of us are asleep. We think we're awake, and, and other teachers have said this down through the ages that that we need, to, we need to wake up. Um, and that awakening doesn't take place. And memories don't take – we don't make memories necessarily in our bodies or in our brains or in our minds. Uh, when you exclude the spirit, the soul, whatever you want to call it, um, you don't have complete awareness of what's going on. And I heard you say, and it really like burned into my brain, you said, the things in our lives that we remember and we can recall – are the times that we were most present and dialed in, and our whole the, the wholeness of who we are. Um, but most of the time, we're asleep, and it's why we can't remember things throughout our lives. And we say things like, "I don't remember anything about my childhood." Well, is that because <laughs> we're asleep? And we go. And I remember, like, I remember where I was on 9-11, and I remember who I was talking to. And I, why? Because you were dialed in and focused and very present in that moment. Otherwise, I'm driving down the street or I'm at work, and I'm just doing what I normally do, and I don't remember anything about that day of September 11, 2001. Um, you know, if, it, if that event didn't happen, I couldn't even tell you what I did on that day. But things like Correct. that, talk briefly about that, because this idea of being asleep, thinking that we're awake, um, is, is such a strong concept. Yeah,
1: I think you're speaking about in this chapter, is maybe the chapter of law of shock in, mm-hmm. in the book, but mm-hmm. the idea is that we need to create shock, in our know, like little shocks in our daily life and daily routine so that we may have a September 11 type of experience on days that are not at all September 11th. Right. And so I think a lot of people, again, get, get confused. Ironically, September 11th would be a day where you would remember yourself, whereas like your daughter's wedding or like your graduation, mm-hmm. not never, no one, because we're like, this is terrible. You know what I mean? Like right. this is so stressful and there's music. People don't know how to come together and celebrate. The way that people come together and celebrate is by inebriating themselves mm-hmm. and then ch- chatting idly about things they don't care about. Like, I think it's been constructed in a way. What did people do on September 11th? They gathered around tables. They mm-hmm. cried together. They like talked about real feelings. Or sort of like there's that scene in Almost famous where like the plane's about to go down and they all start sharing their like secrets they thought they were going to take to their grave mm. so that to me is like if i'm gonna have a party like that's the kind of stuff i want to talk about at that party mm.
2: Mm. That's
1: so because good. i want to remember that that party and i already know i mean listen i'm not perfect i still go to horrible parties sometimes but it's awful you know people are just like you know budweiser had cans of their head and like you know, fancy clothes and just being like, oh, so like, you know, what do you do for work? You know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, (laughs) how are you going to remember who you are? And so, so yeah, so I just think it's like implementing little shocks so that your life can feel as life and death touch and go, like, am I going to go down with the boat or am I going to be the one who saves this ship kind of day, every day? Mm -hmm. And that gives you your life more meaning, you know, because otherwise, like, we can fall into this pit of despair of like, oh god, the meaningless of it, ness of it all. You know, it's if you're especially if you're going to parties where people are like holding paper plates and talking about their jobs. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump into your book briefly. Um, one of the things that that. Struck me on the first few pages. I started reading. Uh, it, it talks about kind of like what perspective you're coming from. A lot of people listening to you trying to figure it out, and like I have a lot of different listeners from from various faith traditions. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is when you started talking about well, I'm coming to, from this, and I'm basing this on a on a principle and an ideology called the Fourth Way. And you have, you have an illustration of a cross, which, you know, coming out of a Christian tradition, I'm like, that resonates so much because Mm. the illustration of it is just beautiful. And it's something that I have contemplated um, quite a bit, but can you explain what the fourth way is and, and explain that illustration?
1: Yeah. It's so funny. I just met with someone recently who was, she was telling me that she was thinking about getting that tattooed on her arm as like Mm -hmm. a remembrance of this meaning. But yeah, fourth way is about, you know, um, living life to the fullest. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that you can't actually experience life without this parallel pursuit, which has to be going in a completely different direction. Um, which is like this hor- this um, vertical line, right? The cross is a horizontal line and a vertical line. So the horizontal line is a representation of our lives. It's like we're born, then we die, then we, you know, this, and, da, 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 and then we die, right? Mm-hmm. And that seems like a line too, but if you were actually to go 3D and float above that line, you would see that it wasn't a line, it was in fact a circle, mm-hmm. So that is like a never-ending circle of life. It just goes on and on and on meaninglessly, you know what I mean, sort of forever. It's like then you're born, then again, there's no meaning to any of that. Um, And then then there's this horizontal line going right through it, which creates the cross. And the horizontal, I mean, the vertical Vertical. line Mm -hmm. that goes right through it, yeah, and creates the cross. And the vertical line represents spirituality or mm. contact with the divine. Mm. And you don't need this line. That's what I think is so interesting about fourth-way work. It's like you could have millions of dollars in your bank account. You could land the girl of your dreams. Like You could do whatever you want with your life without ever having access to the spiritual life. Um, and that's why most most people don't because they just not need it. Um, the thing, though, that this, this cross represents, though, is that what it's saying is, is that all life only actually happens. It's a cross section of those two lines. Mm,
0: that's so good.
1: So like those who give up all their belongings and go on a spiritual quest are kind of missing the life part. Right. Cause they, yeah, maybe they know how to meditate on like a mountain somewhere, but it's like, how about while paying taxes or like, how about while, you know, figuring out how to like communicate with your employees or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, Stuff that you just you don't want to deal with, and they don't seem spiritual. Um, and this 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 culmination, this moment where there's this explosion of those two things, is really the sweet spot of mm. self remembering. If you can have the spiritual awakening, but have it while just creating results in mm. your life, mm. uh, then it really becomes this very beautiful thing.
0: That's really cool, and and it makes me think of. Um, you know, this is not a uh, a new concept. Obviously, um, you, certain Celtic faith traditions, Christian traditions, ancient Celtic Christian traditions, and ancient Orthodox, you will sometimes see in those traditions um, crosses. And at the very intersection, you'll see things like a heart, mm-hmm. or you'll see things like a, you know, a circle, or a radiating sun, uh, or something. It, it's almost like mm-hmm. this is a universal um idea and concept Mm. that that intersection of of the sacred and the divine and the the very human uh and the earthly um that's beautiful that's cool i love that um Mm. the other thing the the next one that i have kind of is the law of divided attention and that's kind of your first law i i have been i've been practicing this recently um and i gotta tell you it's it's a great tool. You mentioned it earlier, and I wanted you to kind of unpack it because it sounded very kind of woo woo because you said, Well, I was practicing divided attention and I was floating above myself. Um, explain that, like the practical application of that, <laughs> of what that means. Like, if I'm at work and I want to practice uh, this awareness and centering, what is the law of divided attention?
1: yeah I mean there's no like literal floating happening. Right, so right. no one needs to worry about that. It's more out like using it. <laughs> it was like, oh shit, this this woman wants me to float. I'm I'm out of here. Um, yeah, like it's just this idea of um, you know, I, I think it's really nice. some of the tricks that help me to use it is kind of like I will bend my knee in one way or I'll sit in one way, or I'll walk in one way, or I'll talk in one way. Now, all those ways are completely asleep, right? The ways in which I'm programmed to bend my knee, the ways in which I'm programmed to kill a tummy, the ways in which I'm programmed to speak words, um, from the dictation to the breaths in between, all of it keeps me asleep. That is how we're designed, right? right. As soon as we start learning how to do something, well, once we finally learned it, that's when we become complex, right? So maybe in the process of learning, you're awake but that's about it right Mm -hmm. and so um this divided attention tool allows you to ask yourself if I was filming myself now I was the star of a film that was about me and it was like going to come out with you know Miramax (laughs) I'm just kidding because I Mm -hmm. was a Miramax no longer (laughs) thing but like you know like what would I do that and you'll notice that the answer will be something very different that's it's ironic because it's Sometimes it'll be, oh, I would just do this, but unlikely. Most of the time it would be like, hmm, I actually would hold my leg this way. I actually would walk this way. I'd actually speak this way. I'd actually hold my head this way. The first step is just seeing how you would do things differently. And that's a mechanical level, sort of like just seeing on a mechanical level how you would move your leg differently from your moving center, right? Mm -hmm. But as you become more... Uh, practice with the study of divided attention, it becomes grander. It's no longer, how would I hold my leg? Although you'll always come back to that because those things do keep us asleep perpetually and fine tuning those will be a work, a life's work. At the same time, bigger things will come to you. It's like, if I was filming myself, would I still be in this career? If I was filming myself, would I still be with this person in a marriage? If I was filming myself, would I yell at my child? Mm. If I was filming myself, would I you know, meditate every day or would I skip it? Like those are the, the bigger questions start to be answered. Mm-hmm. And then you can't help, but get out of it. Cause then you're like, mm, I'm kind of living a lame life because if there really was a movie being made about this, like it's embarrassing, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not killing it at this game. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I know for me, uh, and just reading your book and practicing this, you know, you, you say, imagine when you're sitting, uh, and whatever you're doing, um, just imagine you're, you're, that you're above yourself, looking down like a camera. And mm-hmm. I have done this sitting at a coffee shop, talking to someone, being engaged. And my mind is prone to wander, especially you know if the conversation is maybe not as engaging as I want it to be, or I'm tired, or I have a lot of my mind. I'm focusing. I'll have a tendency to wander off, and I'm like, no, I need to be present and engaged with this mm-hmm. person. Um, and connect with my soul, and not just you know Ooh. my body. And it's been so helpful to in that moment. I say I'm going to practice what I read in Biets book. And so I imagine you know myself at another table looking at us or looking down on top of us. And what it does is it causes you to be present uh, and to fo- and to engage in what is actually happening. Versus, I could be a hundred miles away in my brain. And not even hear what the person is saying, uh, you know, and that's how, like, I think that's what you're talking about is many people are asleep and they're just going through the motions and yet not really connecting on a deep level. So so I, I think it's a great practice. Um, I, I, love oh, so yeah, I, I love it.
1: I'm so glad. Yeah, I love I'm so glad you dig it because that means that, you know, that the instructions translate and that you've mm. verified for yourself that it works.
0: Absolutely, Um, the law of aim is is the the second one here. I'm not going (laughs) to go through all 44; just a couple here, just a few. But one of the things,
1: yeah, exactly. Do it forever. (laughs) Uh, The never-ending podcast.
0: The (laughs) part five. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to read. I'm going to read from this, and it says, "When you journey into your inner world to meditate and awaken conscious your consciousness, you connect to your soul and usher in bliss." Gratitude and intention, what I call the state of love. And I love this next line. You say, to cultivate and maintain this state is your primary aim on planet Earth, and you don't even need to be in love to experience it. Um, I love that. So you believe, um, and and I know this is a much bigger conversation, but our primary aim is to cultivate cultivate and maintain... um, your soul and usher in bliss, gratitude, and intention. What I call, what you call, the state of love. Um, you know, I, to me, that resonates with all the great teachers, and even Jesus himself said, "You know, the greatest commandment is there." It's basically boils down to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's ultimately love is the higher, high, highest law. Uh, can you unpack that just a little bit for us and explain, kind of? this law of aim?
1: Yeah, I think it's just understanding that primary aim needs to be like sort of like a pyramid, like mm-hmm. understanding that the structure of one's life needs to have this certain um, you know, direction of action. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of people put the cart before the horse and they put um, earning money first let's say, right? Or they'll put, um, uh, feeling good first, or they'll put, um, you know, getting what they want first or whatever they're putting first. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things you can put first and they're, they're all great aims. And in fourth way, we're, we're actually not saying that, uh, those aims aren't good. You know what I mean? Cause I think a lot of times in religious studies, it'll be like, those aims are dangerous because mm-hmm. they aren't the love of God and the, 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 the pure, you know, I'm going to put on a turban and a bindi and just like be all day on a rug somewhere meditating and praying. It's like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that there must be a primary aim. And if you don't have a primary aim, then all of your other actions fall like dominoes into failed attempts at reality. And that doesn't mean you won't accomplish stuff. You probably will accomplish some stuff and maybe you'll even make a bunch of money and maybe you'll like, you'll get, you'll get some stuff. The the thing that I'm actually saying is you probably won't be there for any of it. And it may in fact be all the wrong money and all the wrong lovers and all the wrong things, because Mm -hmm. there is an alternate reality at all times available to us where we are completely out of alignment with our destiny Mm -hmm. and that life is not wrong or bad. I actually would say, according to quantum mechanics or you know physics, the idea is that there's millions of options, right? But I actually do believe that there's like this frequency, like a radio station, that if you tune to the correct radio station, your life starts to feel extremely different than it does on any other radio station. So all the other radio stations may be fine. Like maybe there's some Madonna on one and some, you know, Debbie Gibson on another. But like when you get to this radio station, it's like all of a sudden it's Miles Davis and you're like, I don't get how that happens. But this sounds right to me. Like I was thinking that the soundtrack of my life should be Flamenco sketches and now here it is, you know? Mm. Mm. And it's a feeling, it's a feeling. And so the primary, having a primary aim just means saying, like, I will have my primary concern in life is to pray and meditate. And um, then the secondary aim is to earn money. Mm. And I say that only because that's in the law of householding. It's like, good, okay, I'm glad you're praying and meditating. Like, put the turban on, you know what I mean? (laughs) But it's like, um, go figure it out, right? Because it actually isn't just you all alone on the planet. Like, you need to bring this to the world. And to do that, you need to, like, exist
2: Mm. with
1: others in the world of commerce, that's at least what Fourth Way says. So, Mm. you know, um, and I think then when your soul is your primary concern, your work is also going to be informed by that. You know, so you see all these soul driven people, the careers that they end up with are different or Mm. feel different and affect people differently than people who didn't check in with their soul. Like maybe, again, maybe they're very successful interior decorators or whatever, but it doesn't affect
0: others in the same way. Mm, mm. You know, I, I recently, uh was talking to a, a good friend of mine and he was talking about some, some deep inner work that, that uh, he was doing himself. And he said something that, that um, really resonated with me. And uh, he talked about, and I was going to run it by you. And I said, I'm going to talk to Biet because I'm going to be talking to her tomorrow. He mm. talked, he talked about the uh, abandoning and betraying yourself And I said, can you expand on that? He says, yeah, I'm learning a lot that I've really abandoned myself. I said, what does that mean? He He said, I've been really doing some work on shadow self versus your true self. And he says, I've seen a pattern in my life uh, of abandonment, betrayal by other people, mm. but that abandonment mm. is really a mirror of what's going on in me. So when I when I do things in my life, like I take a job to meet just to meet needs, or just for other reasons, or for security or certainty, or even for the sake of just peace, um, the work is not aligned with his true self and his purpose. It's you're really abandoning yourself and. I really resonated with that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how many people in this world are just going through the motions because of, you know, for whatever reason, it's the right thing to do or you're just really good at it. So why not make a lot of money? But it's not something that's in line with your true self, with your heart, with your calling, with whatever you want to call it, your dreams. And that in itself is really you're abandoning yourself, um, mm-hmm. that, and then that will manifest itself. It's a mirror when all of a sudden you will find yourself, why so many people abandoned me? Why uh, are they turning their back on me or why? And really it's what's going on inside yourself. I thought that was, uh, that was a great insight. And, and I think you kind of touch on that in your book at, at different places.
1: Yeah. I mean, a hundred, a hundred percent. That's so so astute, I think it manifests in a bazillion different ways. It's not always abandonment. Sometimes it's uh, rejection and sometimes it's failure and sometimes it's uh, sadness. Mm. But again, it's interesting because like the world of yes is the same as the world of no. Mm. Uh, and so it's interesting in that um, it's just how you perceive it. So like a really successful person may have, Just like, look at Job, right? I mean, like, Mm -hmm. what, what are we even talking about? Like, that's the worst case scenario. And somehow that was not the, the, that was not the takeaway from that story, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it all worked out for Job and that, you know, he realizes that that was actually the whole point, right? Mm. And so I think that that's what is happening for all of us. It's like, it's not about how your life looks specifically on the outside. It's how you take it. To, or you take it to understand it and so I think it's interesting because we can really get upset about ourselves and our situations like our all of our circumstances are um, less than no one's living in perfect circumstances mm-hmm. uh, because circumstances are always changing and so like what may be great circumstances are on Monday on Friday maybe should be circumstances
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so like again someone who's really living in a state of remembering their primary aim um is no longer shaken by circumstances as much because they are like they're just too focused on being I'd rather be in a state of bliss and in a state of reaching for my aims on the planet and be in a state of jovial like gratitude and abundance and ease and flow than I would harp on whatever circumstances just handed me
2: mm. i would
1: I would choose that and so making that choice, my life may not be any less difficult than a person who's just sitting around whining about everything, you know, or feeling miserable or like doing all the wrong things. But I just feel great all the time and Mm. I'm effective. Um, Mm. And I create more and I make more money. And like, I just have more ease in all areas of my life because I'm not so busy using my circumstances as a way to beat myself up and like destroy myself.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I'd like to wind it down with this and just, just kind of end on on this note, you know, all, all mystics in all faith traditions, whether it's Jewish or Sufi or, or Christian, they all kind of come together and say this these two kind of similar things. They come to the point where they say everything belongs and all is well. And that's what I get when I read your book, I think we're living in these times where everything is so binary. And I talk about this a lot on my, on my podcast. And so either or black or white, and you can kind of, you know, we see that in all forms of manifestation in the planet. And yet the reality of life is that things have many, 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 many sides to them and many colors and things are complex. And in your life, through the pain and the struggle and the, everything you've gone through, um, I get this sense that from you um, that you're taking that path to say that everything belongs. And I wish this would never happen, but to say it was through those things that uh, I found joy and peace and love. And um, does that resonate with you at all? Because I know it does with me.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'll take all of it. You know, like it's, um <laughs> I'll take it all. But, you know, as a human, I also, um, I don't have the capacity to, like, choose right. Um, right. the death of a child or choose a deadly mm. illness or choose death even. I don't have that in me. Mm. Um, we're not built that way. That's right. And so that's where kind of trust and faith come in, is mm. that um, I understand that as a human with a mind, I'm going to be aiming for winning a gold medal and a Grammy and, like, getting in a fit bud and, like getting like that's all I can really come up with as a human Mm. and so I'm okay with that being the best that I can come up with um but I want to live a life that is a fusion of that and the universes or God's will for me which Mm. is so much more than that and so much more like you said robust and colorful and rich and so to me it's the marriage of those two things and I don't blame myself for having these you know worldly aims or like Mm you know, uh, that, you know, like resourcefulness on on a a worldly level, because to me, like that's very cute and endearing. And I I see that part of myself as a huge, as a beautiful thing. I just don't want to fall asleep under Mm -hmm. the spell of her because she gets me into so much trouble because (laughs) all she wants is to constantly win and like get what she wants all the time. So I try to be grateful when humility comes and I don't get my way because I'm like, Oh, that's ebbing and flowing. And I'm, allowing for more God now and then I don't want to get lost in the whole God thing because if I went in the God rabbit hole then like I really won't be able to be a rich famous successful entrepreneur because mm-hmm. there's just no way if you just go God 100% of the time with nothing else then you are just like I don't know, you end up in a cave somewhere being like nothing matters. Because that's true in the God realm. Nothing matters. None of this is even mm-hmm. real. You're going to die one day and we're all going to return the, to this.
0: That's the whole fourth fourth way you're talking about, right? Is like you mm-hmm. can't have, well, you can if you choose to. You can choose to live on the vertical line or you can choose to only live on the horizontal. But if you could find that sweet spot of the intersection, that's where that's where it is, right? Is that is that what you're saying? You can have exactly. both.
1: Exactly, and it. And it's radical because it's radical because it like totally makes you squirm like anything that would make you feel squeamish or like cringe worthy mm-hmm. about chasing your dreams or about failing all the things that are going to happen. If you actually go on the horizontal line, like you mean it, mm-hmm. um, you know, will require God energy to do so, mm. you know? And then w- if you just go the God route, then like, you know you're gonna need you're gonna need life stuff or you're just gonna feel like you're floating all the time like some mm. kind of care bear you know so it's like this i think it's just radical again like i think a lot of people can cop out with one or the other like you know i'm sure you know people who sure. are like i'm a republican i care about making money like i care about my abs or whatever you know like right. <laughs> okay great and then you know people who are like i don't care about anything at all all i care about is rainbows and chakras and like (laughs) i don't even believe i don't even make much money but i don't care you know you're a loser (laughs) and you're a liar because you you know you know that you cry at night sometimes because you know that your you know abs aren't gonna be the thing you know what i mean so like these two people need to come together inside Mm -hmm. of us and we're all those Mm -hmm. two you know obviously we're not all republican chakra chakra lovers but you know we're some blend of two very opposing things. And so if we can find a way to integrate those two things, we'll end up with this gorgeous person who we will be surprised by for the rest of our lives. And I think that like, if I can think of one aim that goes above all aims is just like, can you live a life where you're surprised by what keeps happening Mm. and keep going? Like, are you still surprised with what your life looks like? Mm. Or did you stop being surprised like 20 years ago? You know,
0: That's wonderful. And I think that's a great way to wind this up. How can people um, find you and where can they, if they want to learn more and discover, obviously your book is out, um, Simon and Schuster, don't just sit there. Uh, I was in a Barnes and Noble the other day and there's still several copies, which means that you're selling a lot because they ordered several. Um, Don't just sit there by Biet Simkin. Where else can people find you?
1: Yeah, all booksellers have it. And it's also available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. And um, um, I have a website, uh, bietsimkin.com, which I guess you'll have in show notes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, biet, you'll, you'll see the spelling there. And then if you're into Instagram, which I am into and I share <laughs> a lot of my philosophies on there. I'm like an Instagram and lots of And uh, lots of
0: videos of your baby.
1: Oh, my God. Yes, yes. <laughs> If awesome. you want to see the baby that didn't die, she is on there, and she is getting bigger and bigger and so cute. She's yes, insane. she's beautiful. Um, her name is Baby Cash, and that's at Guided by Biet, which is just Guided by, and then my name, B-I-E-T. Uh, and then I also have a record uh, out on uh, iTunes and Spotify, and it's called The Lunar, which is my first name, Biet, and the record's called The Lunar. So I use that to score my meditations in you feel free to use it with your own meditation if you like. It just sort of sounds like cold play.
0: That's awesome. Uh, Biet, thank you so much for taking the time. And um, I always try to leave with an encouragement to my guests. And so I want to just, um, first of all, thank you for um, your – life and the way that you touch my own daughter. And I also want to thank you for being honest and real and transparent. And I love that you don't shy away from the humanity and the messiness of life and help to show us that there is a a higher way in the midst of that, that you can be both, that you can be a mom, you can be a successful entrepreneur, you can be whatever you choose to be. in in the day-to-day of that but you can also have presence you can have awareness you can have spirituality and you're doing a wonderful job at that uh, so keep doing what you're doing
1: thanks bob it's been such a lovely time spending with you so thank
0: you awesome okay well we will um talk to you soon
1: talk to you soon bye-bye